Please take a seat. We have the second reading. The Bible reading is taken from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to verse 6. And this can be found on page 61 in the Bibles, in the chairs, or on page 2 of the service booklet. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jonathan Fordry. I'm a member of the congregation here. And as we look at this passage, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, we do pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would be working in our hearts to understand your word and to help us to live out what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. So, are any of you um, a fan of 50s epic films? Let's see where we get one up. Yeah, this one. The 1956 Cecil B. DeVille blockbuster. Um, there were more that he, from his stable. But he had Charlton Heston here, being very pointy-fingered, lugging around in scribe rocks. It had a cast of thousands and a really massive budget for its day. So it really did have a big influence, the uh, Ten Commandments, in culture. Enough that people wanted to make a film about it. Um, But like uh, the donkey uh, and the three wise men in the Christmas story, is popular culture the place where we want to be learning the real meaning of what is in the Bible? And I suggest before we get into the passage that this morning... Uh, we might want to reconsider our frame of reference to let the Bible really tell us, rather than popular culture, what our preconceptions say about this passage. It is a totemic passage. It's, it's seen that way. So perhaps we can think about a few of perhaps the conceptions or misconceptions that are there. So the first one, is the Bible itself, is the t- are the Ten Commandments in themselves a big thing in the Bible? And in fact, they're only mentioned three and a half times. Three times by Moses himself later on in the passages there where he uh, mentions them and reminds the Israelites about them. Um, And once kind of half a time by Jesus when talking to the young ruler in Luke 18, he mentions the commandments. But 
if you go and look through the whole of Scripture, and particularly the New Testament, as a commentary on the Old Testament, there are many, many references to the law uh, as a whole and to the system of atoning sacrifice. That's really concentrated on. And the system of atoning, of, of atoning sacrifice, that's the way that God dealt with our sins through the shedding of blood. So, perhaps that's one thing to think. Um, the next thing that people kind of often say is that this is the statement of the law of God. If you want to go to a definitive passage on where you've got the whole law of God, this is the place to come. But as we heard in our, um, our first passage in Matthew, when Jesus was asked, what did he say here? He said, he quoted you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your, uh, and with all your mind. And he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when we listen to the greatest biblical scholar that ever lives, he doesn't quote Exodus 20. He actually quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and Leviticus 19 verse 18. So perhaps, again, we like to rethink things. The next uh, thought that sometimes comes up is that before um, the, uh, this passage, or before Moses, there wasn't a law. There was no right and wrong. We didn't have a way also of sins being atoned for. No, no capability of dealing with sin. But actually, clearly, that has got to be erroneous as well. There was always right and wrong. We have here in Genesis 3, God mentioning a command that Adam and Eve had broken. And clearly in, this, in the account of the fall, Eve and Adam were blaming Satan and God for their own poor choices. And of course, nothing really has changed ever since, has it? But not only that, in verse 21, it says... And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And of course, you can't have garments of skins without the shedding of blood. So even right at the creation, there was a system of shedding blood in order to atone for sin. The next point when we come to the Ten Commandments is that they are seen as a bit of the poster boy, if you like, for the old covenant against the new covenant of Christ in the New Testament. And here's a, uh, a, a natty summary of them all. If you, and we're not going to study this because we wouldn't have the time. But Hebrews really does deal with the whole relationship of the law and atoning sacrifice. If you like, as we said last week, a bit of a commentary on the Old Testament. And I think... If we wanted to summarize the Mosaic Covenant, we could really summarize it as sin, sacrifice, repeat. And Hebrews really, firstly, really addresses the fact that we needed to break that cycle of sin, sacrifice, and repeat. It dealt with the, uh, in Hebrews 4, deals with the, de- the, meaning of, the real meaning of the Sabbath. Um, in chapter 9, it says external regulations only applied up until the time of the new order. So a lot of the things in, later in Exodus um, we don't adhere to. In Hebrews 5, the high priest um, Jesus 
is said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. Um, and in verse seven, in chapter seven, it says that his order is better. I mean, in Hebrews eight, as he's quoted in the middle here, for if the covenant had been faultless, there would have been no place being sought for a second, or uh, as, as, as rendered in this um, translation. And in Hebrews 9, the whole mosaic system of sacrifice is said to be a copy, or as it says here, a shadow of the true substance that was coming. So, kind of a summary, we're not bound by the mosaic law, but by the law of Christ as found in the New Testament. And we need a once-for-all sacrifice of Christ and not these endless repeats of Aaron. And I know that was going (laughs) to, what we've just covered there in about, two minutes we will require an awful lot of sermons to to cover properly but hopefully if nothing else will whet your appetite for further study and I think finally as we come as our prelude before we come uh, on to the passage one of the most commonly held views is that the ten commandments are just about God's law it's nothing at all to do with God's love here is God at his fun sponge best He only wants to make life unpleasant and constrained for those under his thrall. But hopefully, as we're going to see, nothing could be further from the truth. So having said all that, am I saying, is there there any value uh, in studying the Ten Commandments? You know, having having just just dissed them all like that, is it? But of course, of course there is. It's a very special part of the Bible. But I think what the point I'm trying to be making here is that we need to let the Bible interpret itself. Don't wrench it out of context. Don't put one passage on a pedestal to the exclusion of others. And we need to view it especially through the eye of the New Testament. So, we're in the middle of a series, an Exodus, the Great Rescue. Um, the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. They've escaped Pharaoh. And his chariots, uh, they moaned a lot, eaten manna and quail, and moaned some more. And now we've arrived at Mount Sinai in the middle of a wilderness uh, next to what seems to be an active volcano. Lots of fire and cloud. Uh, And last week we heard that God wanted Israel as his treasured possession. And now we're actually in the middle of an incredible dialogue between God and his people, mediated through Moses, where messages were passed to and fro. And this is a real personal message that we get from God, coming now in the, in the passage. And it starts with, and God said. And God spoke all these words, because he is deliberately here, Echoing the words of Genesis 1. In the beginning, and God said, and there was. Here we are, the God of creation. God is saying, here am I, the God of creation, now speaking to you. And it's the passage from his perspective. The Matthew passage earlier on was from our perspective about loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor. This is God speaking from his um, perspective. But not only is he the God of creation, he's now linking it to the special God that, of the God 
of Israel. He's saying, I am the I am. The word, the, the name that he'd given to uh, his people uh, for him. A special name for the covenant, for, the, for, this, for this link with his, with his people. So we don't just have Israel with their favorite God in their little territory. Actually, we have Israel as the special possession of God linked back to the fact that he is also their creator. And he is entrusting his law to his people, which is a further way of setting them apart from all of the nations around them. And that personal relationship is built on love, the love of the I am, and what he's done for his people in redeeming Israel. It's not, absolutely not, based on the obedience that follows from the following passage. And so it then follows that the commandments or the words in the passage should be followed as a response to this great love and not as a requirement. So the first commandment then is there should be no other gods before me or beside me. And it's really natural or or logical, isn't it, that God to say to us that there should be none beside him. And I I was struck, um, and this is where uh, Spurgeon says, you can always tell a a man um, the profession of a a preacher by what he says. So my personal example here will will possibly help and make you understand it. Many of you know that I'm involved in a startup company in Ireland. And a couple of years ago, we were at a critical point Uh, And you might even have said that we were a lost cause uh, without some further investment. And a friend of mine who runs a similar company but with a turnover about 50 times ours uh, stepped in. He put some money in along with a great deal of expertise, help, time, and I would say even love. Because he's invested, he cares about how the company's doing, how we do things, and he really wants us to succeed. And I'm proud of my friendship with him, and I'm grateful for all he's done for the company. So, in response to that, why would I go off and speak to or do business with one of his competitors? And how heavily invested in Israel was God? When he got hold of it, wasn't it a lost cause? It was an old man and his infertile wife wandering around the Middle East. But God gave Abraham a son through a miracle and he promised him his offspring would be like grains of sand on the seashore. Now, God then saved the infant Israel from a severe famine and then made them prosper in Egypt before bringing them out of slavery as we've been learning. And when they left they numbered in the hundreds of thousands. So knowing all this, why would they, and why would we, not be proud of the God who brought us out of slavery, the slavery of Egypt, the slavery to our own sin? Why then would you want to have other gods beside the true God? Why would you want to deal with his competition? Which, after all we know is false anyway. 
So, is God invested in you? Do you know this God who wants you to do well, to follow him and his commandments? Let's see we move on. The next commandment is we should have make for yourself no carved images or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or, under the, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And that jealousy is actually key to this passage. To think about jealousy from a human point of view, Hosea was uh, instructed to marry a prostitute to illustrate to the people of Israel that they and we are as unfaithful to God as we can be to each other. And within marriage, don't we sometimes need that, the jealousy of our spouses to keep us straight? Do you have to hug him like that every time you see him at church? Do you have to kiss her like that when you see her? And doesn't this just bring to our attention or to their attention the wandering to which our own hearts are often so unconsciously prone? But even here, this example, is this useful? This is useful, but the analogy breaks down. Prior to marriage and indeed after the death of a spouse, it's okay to enter into a new relationship. But is it okay to enter into a new relationship with a different God? I mean, is he insecure about us meeting someone better? Does he say, you know, does my liturgy look big in this? Uh, do, do we need to throw in a bit of the prosperity gospel in order to spice up our sect life? Is he competing with equals to whom we can wander off. No, surely. They are fakes and lies made of wood, stone, or sometimes things which are very precious to us. No, God is a jealous God out of his great love for us. He doesn't want us to suffer at the hands of false gods. Be they ones demanding child sacrifice, like Molech, or the right of a woman over her body, be they ones that enslave us to social media fame, or wealth, or power. These all damage us, or they damage our relationship with those around us, and they damage our relationship with God. So let's move on. In verse 6b, it says, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These are quite difficult verses. And these verses have been used to justify some very cruel conclusions. So we need to be careful. If we look at Exodus uh, 34, it's a parallel passage. The Lord, the Lord, um, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will be by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So that's a kind of restatement. But Deuteronomy 24 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So it can't mean that God will punish children because of something that a mum and dad did. And surely that's, that's what Deuteronomy 24 says. I mean, it, it is true that if we make, as parents make poor choices, our children will be in the firing line. And we all suffer because of the fall of Adam and Eve. So that's all true. But aren't these different points to what's being made here? Perhaps when we're looking at, at this passage, we need to understand what we know of Israel and our own track record for turning away from God. We know that our salvation is based on God's love and not our following his rules. Therefore, the only unforgivable sin is continuing unbelief. So hating God is this conscious and sustained turning away from him and following after these false gods whilst rejecting the advances of the true God. And can we say that God is unjust for that? Surely, anyone who suffers, will it not be because they've rejected God for themselves, even down to three or four generations? But I think the, the, the point here is that God's love is so overwhelming that he can't help himself but want to save thousands upon thousands by contrast. You could even put it that he will only allow a maximum of three or four generations before again breaking in with his love to save. I mean, couldn't we just say that actually there is no lineage which is lost to Christ forever? And no place on earth that is bereft of his saving love. And if we're being literal here, for more than 60 or 80 years. And his love for us overflows from generation to generation. I'm, I'm in fact, I've calculated it, I've got a family tree at home, the 10th generation descendant from French Huguenots who fled religious persecution over 300 years ago and came as immigrants to the UK. Now, whereas you can only ever believe for yourself and not for your children, we can all trust in this God who shows his mercy down the generations, even as, as he has shown that mercy to me. So the clear point, I think, of the verse is, is to show this contrast between God's rich love and his very slow anger. We all deserve his anger, but we will only get in the way of it if 
we persist in our own hate of him rather than accepting his love in salvation, which is what he wants to do whenever he possibly can. So, as a response, shall we spend a a short time now in silence to worship our God, our own I am, and just to think for a moment what especially he has redeemed you from. Or if he's not done this, perhaps to take the opportunity for the first time to ask him to do so. Shall we do that?